Hello and welcome to the first episode of Housed, the Shared Living Podcast. I'm Sarah Canning from the Property Marketing Strategists. I'm Daniel Smith from Student Housing Consultancy. And I'm Deanie Lee from the Property Marketing Strategists. So this has been a long time coming. We've been talking about doing doing a podcast for a while. Um, I think, well, you guys, I know, are big, big podcast fans, but I think we just kind of felt that we've got, we have lots of chats and we have lots of things that we talk about. And actually, instead of doing those in private, maybe it might be interesting for other people to hear those chats and maybe ask some of those questions that, because we're all a bit independent, we could ask that maybe can't always be asked. It's it's all subjective, isn't it? I mean, whether it's interesting to one person, I don't know, but we'll uh, we'll see. But yeah, we we've constantly had those conversations, haven't we? Summing up what we've done during the week and discussing any of the challenges, primarily the challenges. And so I, I do think it's interesting to break that down. I'm all for transparency, so uh, you know I'm sure people have noticed on LinkedIn that I'm quite happy to call it as it is. And and I think the work that you're both doing at Property Marketing Strategists is is making a huge difference to the sector and sort of democratising a lot of the data, the student data in particular. So more we can do of that, the better. Yeah, I agree. I think we're all we're all quite busy people. And because we're freelance, we get to meet amazing people all the time and go to lots of events. So I think it's really useful to, to sum it up really in this format, because not everybody reads everything that we post on LinkedIn, shock horror, um, <laughs> but maybe some people like watching content and some people like listening to content. So I guess we're covering all the bases here. So I guess on that topic, we've we've all been out and about doing interesting things and talking to interesting people. Dina, you went to the Modern Women Property and Construction Conference recently. What were the key topics being discussed there? Yeah, no, and it was a really great thing to do. And I think you've been to one before, Sarah, and I think as a kind of modern women thing, I think just it was such a inclusive, welcoming, a really comfortable environment where you could feel you could ask questions, you could, you know, you could do what you needed. So first and foremost, I think just that that kind of informal environment where even though you don't know anyone, because it was totally different to the normal kind of networking that I do, it was it was really great to be able to go into that environment and feel comfortable and safe, really. So first and foremost, I think that was a really positive thing. In terms of kind of the topics around kind of property and construction, there was a lot of positivity around the property market and how they kind of feel that it's reached the bottom of its curve and that we should start to see that uplifting again. A lot of the people talking in the room were investing in kind of prime London location, but I'm sure that will impact the rest of the property sector as it as it drives forward. And obviously, we know there's there's lots of still challenges ahead of that. But I think that's a positive message that is good that we're starting to hear at the start of 2024. And hopefully, as we move along, that will start to, to, to continue to get those positive messages. Another big topic was around recruitment. And I've been hearing quite a lot about this. And I think at the end of the Property Week conference, it was mentioned by a couple of panellists there around kind of the lack of getting people into construction which is making those build projects and those kind of challenges that we're facing kind of in this housing crisis all the more harder, really. And I just I kind of don't we don't hear as much about it in the PBSL sector as maybe we should and kind of what the impact of that is. So and obviously part of that conversation was apprenticeships, which you'll know, Sarah, is another passion of mine and something that I'm always talking about, not just in construction and vocational, but across the board, how we need to be using apprentices. And also apprenticeship degrees was a big discussion there as well and about how loads of people, there was a recruiter there that people had worked on kind of big infrastructure projects and done that doing a degree. Obviously, that's another discussion around that we're always having Sarah around what's the impact of that on accommodation when people doing degrees can't live in that accommodation. So so lots of talk there around around that recruitment. 
And finally, one which I hadn't heard before was around COP28. And obviously that had happened at the back end of last year. And that there was some, it kind of hinted at some decisions that were made around COP28 that would impact the sector. But I haven't really heard anything about that. So I think there's kind of more to go and investigate on there and see what that impact is and just keep an eye on that regulation and making sure everyone's ahead of the curve, really. So I think they were the key key topics for me. Yeah, that's great. I think, I mean, obviously not being a modern woman, I, I wasn't at uh, at that conference. <laughs> You're but, welcome um, to come, Dan. <laughs> well, it's a nice it's a nice antidote to, to the All Star panel at, at Property Week, which caused a little bit of a little bit of uproar. But uh, but equally, uh, there's so much work to be done on you know equality in the PBSA sector. So I think the more that we can see those events, the better that are promoting. Yeah, I suppose engagement and 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 more women in the workplace, in particular in in PBSA and really estate in general it's it's there's a lot of blue suits there needs to be because you know of course there's there's a lot of a lot of finance a lot of investment but at the same time there is absolutely no reason why we can't have more equality right now so I, I would like to see a lot more of that those events are a really good starting point for sure yeah and I think Dan the what the good thing about it was which we don't often do because we do end up in kind of our insular sector events where it's all the same yeah. people it was really nice to just have a real range of people there and uh, you know and you learn more about other sectors and sometimes I think sometimes we're a bit too insular and maybe we need to step a little bit more out of you know I always say that people in our sector don't see themselves as part of the built environment or real estate which seems a bit madness really because we clearly are but yeah I think it it, it was a welcome change to going to the same event where it's the same people and and just one sector that we're talking about. Yeah, it's it's a that's the danger of real estate that we can end up siloed in, you know, BTR, PBSA, co-living, later living, whatever else it might be. There's so many there's so many sort of transferable skills that you could take from one industry to the other that anyone could take from one industry to the other or one sector to the other. And, you know, there's there's so many shared learnings that could be that could be taken as well. So again, the more sort of cross-pollination and cross-collaboration that you can see, the, the better. At the property marketing strategist, we're um, doing a bit of research into, into that, the kind of networking space and event space. So we'll share more in a future episode. And I was going to say, Sarah, you also went to the Urban Ovation Later Living event as well. Was that this week or last week? Well, it's funny we're talking about events and the format because actually it was something it was a format that I really enjoyed. It was in an evening, and it was like drinks and nibbles and it was very casual it was two hours it was on a Thursday evening at Ryder Architects office in London and it felt really casual really informal really open and I went as as a guest of Loop Live team who are busy working away behind the scenes looking to develop later living now we can have a debate another day about the terminology of later living because we're we're not, we're not convinced that it's it's the right terminology but for the purpose of this we're talking about rented property for the over 55s so rider architects and loop live um presented and What's a really potentially difficult concept to get your head around is why would the older generation rent? Most, you know, there's a lot that have homes. And what, what we discussed was 4.6 million over 55s nationally want to downsize, but they're also scared of the potential future investment loss you know, for their beneficiaries, basically. They want to keep hold of those properties and they might want to downsize, but they don't necessarily want to down quality. And in some respects, they'd quite like to, you know, they might live in an older property and they might want to actually up quality. And so there's all this going on. Maybe they want to try living in a different location. Maybe they want to try city living or they want to try seaside living. So the point really is, 
that this whole kind of rented later living sector is not about forcing older people to sell their properties and rent because that that's not not really gonna solve anything but the point really is that there's all of these people that have probably are empty nesters but they've got large properties and those large properties could be used for families that desperately need housing so the you know the, the vision really is that people with lots of empty rooms that they don't want to sell their house they can keep their house they can go and rent somewhere have an amazing experience brilliant quality you know luxury living somewhere maybe different rent their existing house out which will pay for the rent in their new rented property and allow either family members, you know, young families or, you know, the wider rented net network. They're also talking about actually, you know, people can move into really nice rented. Maybe they want to do home improvements. Maybe, you know, they are living in an older property and they, they love technology. You know, they love smart, smart technology, but they can't have it in their house. Well, actually, they can move out for six months, go and live somewhere amazing, get some work done on their property, and it increases in value if that's their intention. So there's loads and loads of reasons. But, I mean, the, the you know, the, the diagrams and the data that we saw about all of these empty houses and how how many of those rooms could be used for kind of the greater good of people that desperately need housing. So it's, it's a really exciting sector. It's, it's you no, know, we haven't, there, there are developments like that at the moment. We haven't seen, seen lots of them yet, but I think we need, it's one to, to watch. And I think the whole conversation about rental, I think, you know, there's two potential blockers to that model. One is renting generally, you know, uh, I still don't think it's accepted. I think our government, you know, for as long as I can remember, are pushing home ownership. And actually, there's lots of benefits to, to renting. And hopefully with the the kind of the BTR and co-living model, maybe that is becoming normalised. And the fact that people realise that they probably can't own a home until much, much later. Hopefully that positive attitude about renting will kind of seep into into the the later living sector as well. But also it is that later living. And we're not talking about people who need care. We're not talking about retirement living. We're talking about that middle, which isn't catered for. There's loads of retirement living and care homes and they're being built brilliantly and operated wonderfully but you've got that kind of probably 55 to 75 year age age group where I said they're empty nesters they've got big homes they're not ready to go into retirement but where you know where do they go so yeah I was fascinated learned a hell of a lot and met some really really interesting people yeah, this, this podcast isn't just uh, just PBSA as some people might have thought it's very much shared living yeah and what's really interesting about you were saying there Sarah about like it's not only like your family could move into your big family home and you could go and live in a city. Like we've always talked, you know, some people might know I recently left London to move to the country, but actually retiring in a city is a much more sensible thing to do. So instead of your children renting in a city, they can move to your, your kind of your out of town house and they can go and live the city life, you know, and their their children are paying the rent because they've got the house. So yeah, that's a really interesting concept why I hadn't thought about it that way. So right. And one thing that I have listened to um, recently, which really fascinated me, and I just thought this has got Dan's name all over it. On the Wonky podcast, there was a debate about possible fraudulent behaviour around international agent fees. 
I know, Dan, this is something that you've spent a long time researching and exposing. What's the latest? Well, yes. So the the agent fees are slightly different in terms of the fraudulent behaviour that I've exposed. It was very much around PBSA accommodation bookings. Uh, I, I know the Wonky podcast is brilliant. I listen to that episode and highly recommend anything they do. Same with ISEF as well. Martin Van Veen is, uh, is an absolute pro. So well worth listening to the ISEF podcast to you know, he'll he'll be discussing various elements of agent fraud as well. But in terms of PBSA and, and what was seen, you know, later later in the market last year and also at the start of this year, it's probably important to set the context first. So, you know, we have a university funding crisis. So the universities are crying out for international students because they're higher fee payers. We'd just come through COVID. And so there was a bit of a, you know, there was pent up demand there from international students, but domestics as well. And we have a student housing crisis in the UK, which obviously means that there's very little accommodation. Uh, and Richard Ward at Stu Rents thinks it's going to be, we're going to be short of around half a million beds by 2026. So that means that later in the market, especially, there's going to be little to no availability. And I think that, you know, that creates opportunities and it creates a risk as well. So it's opportunity for people to exploit it, whether it's marketplaces, individuals, companies, agents, but also it's, you know, a, a big risk for the marketplaces in particular and the students in that there will be no availability a bit later on in, in the market. And we certainly saw some of that play out in terms of that that availability issues, but there are a lot of factor, uh, factors at play. I know people want me to point the finger at one particular actor here. I don't think I can because I think it is, a you know, uh, like I said, a, a multitude of, of actors at play. So on, onto the saga, as it were, what happened was Roughly August, September, I got a few calls from some some operators, pretty big operators, very credible, that were effectively saying, where, where are the Chinese students? Where are, where are the bookings? Because the cancellation rate coming through was, was pretty astronomical. So I, I did a bit of digging, spoke to a few marketplaces, a few agents, and sort of started to try and uncover what was going on. Now, I was told very much that it was a flight to quality, that Chinese students in particular were a bit more discerning this year it was kind of russell group or nothing and and that meant that ultimately the tier two universities uh, and beyond were were struggling because students were kind of trading up and they were looking to go to russell group universities and if they didn't get in they were going to australia the us or canada so that was sort of the start of it but it didn't really explain these these extremely kind of high cancellation rates so i did a bit more digging into that and i have to thank the guys at, at viva city wechat mini programs because they helped me do quite a lot of the digging of course because a lot of it was on uh, chinese social media but but yeah we effectively looked at the social networks we looked on uk forums as well and we found there were a lot of people reselling rooms. There were a lot of sort of students just trying to get sublets. And that was, you know, that that was quite sort of striking in the sense that it hasn't really happened before. Yes, if you suddenly need to, to you know, go away or your visa doesn't get approved, normally it would be, you know, the, the operator would just kind of let you out of your contract with the no visa, no pay or, you know, no study, no pay, etc., but what we're seeing, it, this was on a mass scale. So I think that was part of the issue in that students were possibly price gouging. And so this wasn't just a case of that it was one actor and it was marketplaces or it was students or it was criminal gangs or whatever. These students were effectively seeing that there was dynamic pricing going on in PBSA. The prices were starting low. They were buying those rooms. And then later on in the market, they were trying to sell those rooms on. 
if they couldn't sell them, then you know that's that's um, that was on them to either try and um, uh, to to have to make the payments or on the operator to try and recoup the money ultimately. But also, then you can kind of come at this from from a marketplace side of things too, and I think that's one of the challenges that all marketplaces have at the moment. They have very little availability later in the market, so they're all desperate to secure that early on. And so, what we found on social media were some marketplaces and agents were adopting quite aggressive tactics in terms of telling students that they could book pretty much anywhere they want, book accommodation anywhere they want, and then they could cancel any of those at any time. Now, that is obviously not true because once you've paid your deposit you're, uh, and you've signed your contract, you're effectively liable for that, for that room. So, you know, as much as the marketplaces wanted to try and take those, you know, get those bookings in wherever they were from, and wherever they were for, they were ultimately leaving themselves liable. Now that, of course, doesn't wash with the operators because operators are always going to be sort of trying to hold marketplaces to account. And that was that was one of the key challenges, I think, that the operators faced, that there was a bit of a danger of, well, hey, if I call out this behaviour, will I not get as many bookings from this marketplace next year? Maybe, who, who knows? So yeah, that was a challenge. But Operators ultimately launched their, you know, it, it kind of went quiet after that. Operators then launched their rates in sort of October time. And you know, Scape were quite early out the blocks, True, Grayson's, uh, and then Homes for Students and Unite. They launched pretty quickly. And straight away, each of these operators, uh, you know, I'd say the majority of these operators, certainly the big ones, saw fake bookings coming in. And they were coming in en masse. They were... It, it wasn't just that they were just the odd fake booking here and there. And, and by fake booking, I mean that these weren't genuine students that were being put into the, the, the property management systems and through the booking engine. They were fake names and they were fake email addresses. But effectively, the email addresses, some of them had been set up by bots and They've been created in the QQ um, domain, which is obviously a Chinese email server. And it, yeah, it, it ultimately meant that this was happening en masse. Rooms were being reserved. But luckily, the operators were, were catching it. I think that, you know, whether it was individuals going through the booking engines or the bots going through the booking engines and placing tentative or confirmed bookings. I think that that was partly also to do with the fact that operators had been quite lax in terms of uh, not putting deposits back in, not checking IDs for every student, not checking university uh, admission letters, etc., uh, or having international guarantors. During COVID, everyone dropped that because it was, you know, all hands on deck, just get the bookings in. That was one of the reasons, I think, why some of these bookings kind of went through. But equally, it's, it, you know, the, the bots were pretty sophisticated. There was a lot of IP traffic coming from China, also coming from India, but also coming from North America. And some of these operators blocked certain IP addresses because they were seeing, you know, huge amounts of traffic to their sites and also that they, they were getting through into the booking engine. That worked to a certain extent because it kind of calmed a lot of them down. Some genuine marketplaces that use, uh, that sort of will scrape pricing and availability, et cetera, were kind of up in arms. They were like, hey, you blocked us. What, what's going on? So those genuine marketplaces were, were typically okay. But... But yeah, that was that was a real shock to the system for the operators that, you know, their, their IT teams were having to go through pretty shocking traffic and, and pretty shocking activity from bots or, or individuals as well.
So some of them blocked these these fake bookings. And, you know, it was it was clear that all of this traffic was was very, very unusual. The good news is that in sort of publicizing what was going on, these mass block bookings, you know, we we sort of brought it to awareness and we stopped some other operators going through the same thing. You know, we recommended some of those measures to put in place that I've, that I've just mentioned. Uh, and that did help to, to guard against it, the sort of taking deposits, checking IDs and, and making sure that you were following up. That was one of the key things that was exposed. I think that some operators later in the market last year that were kind of stung by some of these late cancellations hadn't actually followed up fully with each of the students. But when it came to you know first instalment time, they were panicking because they'd seen, oh, right, we're <laughs> That money's not coming in. That student actually doesn't exist. So, you know, yes, it's a lot more legwork to get the IDs in and, you know, make sure that you've got a capture on your website. Every PMS can offer that. So just make sure that you're, you've got a sort of capture on your website form. That should get rid of some of the bots. You know, who was behind it? This is the million dollar question. And, you know, I, I do think that one or more agents or marketplaces were too aggressive in trying to trying to sell student rooms and they you know may have placed a certain number of bookings to then try and resell them later on and and you know securing that availability early in the market then finding a genuine student later on in the booking cycle and and i think you know they were placed quite early on some of these bookings and it just became so obvious this year after in sort of you know october november time the operators were able to be a bit more vigilant. But I think shouting about it on LinkedIn just made everyone else have that conversation. I know that some of those conversations were had at, at, at quite a high level in certain operators. But, you know, so I do agree that there's a flight to quality here. So I do think that some of these Chinese cancellations are because students have decided, I'm not going to go to this tier two university. I'm going to go to a different university, a Russell Group, or I'm going to wait and go to Australia or the US or wherever else. And And so that definitely did have something, you know, something to it. But yeah, the agents and marketplaces, I think there's a certain amount of focus on scale or nothing, get the bookings in, it doesn't matter. Now, this isn't all marketplaces. I'll, I'll just be really clear on that. Uh, and and I think that some of those practices are just, you know, particularly aggressive sales teams, maybe, who are, you know, really focused on hitting their targets, etc. So totally, totally understand that. But, you know, in terms of who else could have been involved? Definitely, it could have been just individual students looking to price gouge and looking to buy low, sell high later in the market. And then if they could, then great. If they couldn't, then, yeah, then you know, they just they didn't have to worry about it because they effectively had put fake names in uh, and the operators hadn't necessarily checked up on it. So that's certainly one element of it. I wouldn't go so far as to say it's it's triad gangs or anything like that. I just think I just think it's either individuals price gouging or it's those marketplaces. But, you know, how can we guard against it? Well, you've got to be pretty vigilant in terms of what your IT, what your web traffic is looking like, your system set up, making sure that you've got that capture form, making sure that you're taking deposits. Like That's one of the key things, because obviously anyone is going to place a booking and possibly hold on to it. And we all know that operators love to declare good occupancy to uh, to investors, whether that's a tentative booking that hasn't fully confirmed or uh, or a confirmed booking. So I think looking at your systems, making sure that that's the case for, you know, that you've got all of those checks in place in particular. It's not necessarily that, you know, everyone needs an international guarantor because that can be that, that can put certain markets off. But 
the interesting thing was that you know the the repercussions last year were were felt massively that these cancellation rates from from China in particular were anything up to sort of 20% across the board for for different operators didn't just hit smaller operators hit some of the bigger operators too and you know I recently was sent a list of availability in in certain assets uh, certain um PBSA assets across the country and it was really alarming there were there's availability in Glasgow in Durham in York in in Bristol, in these places that should be completely full. And I don't think that operators have been sort of talking enough about the fact that, yes, you know, last year was a great year for occupancy, but actually a lot of them were caught short by by the sort of fake booking scandal, as it were. So I'm pleased that we managed to guard against it a bit more this year. Drawing attention to it definitely helped people talk about it. There are certain measures that you should definitely be putting in place if you're a PBSA operator. I'm not convinced that we're going to have the same kind of problem this year because I think there will be more availability later on in the market. I'm not 100% convinced on the strength of certain international markets. I think Russell Group will do just fine, but we'll we'll see how we go the rest of the way. So it's it's going to be really interesting to see how things go with dynamic pricing, of course, as well, because that definitely plays into the student psyche of, well, hey, if I buy now, great then I could potentially sell it on later on. And potentially it may be that some marketplaces or agents were doing that too. So all in all, this isn't this isn't just a, a who done it and I can say it was, you know, Professor Plum in in Shanghai and and whatever. But it's it's very much about being vigilant, working closely with your marketplaces and agents to make sure that you know they aren't being too aggressive in the sales, that they're not just spraying and praying as it were and and putting out multiple different bookings to different different places because they do that for universities. Obviously, students apply to multiple different universities. They should not be doing that for accommodation. And that's one of the things that we need marketplaces and agents to stop in particular. But also it's then guarding against the subletting too and making sure that, you know, in terms of your sublets, you're really getting involved. If, if you are allowing subletting at all, understand who is subletting from who and how it's working, because you really need to make sure that, you know, student A that's having to resell the room and student B that's come in and is subletting. You don't want student B to be paying an extra £150 a week. That's no good for anyone. So, again, the onus is very much on the operators here, but it's on creating those relationships with your students and with your marketplaces and agents to make sure that this doesn't happen again. So uh, I'll keep everyone posted as and when I hear more from certain operators, but it does seem like it's died down a bit and hopefully that will continue. Um, I was going to say, we've got so many more questions about this because there's so <laughs> many routes. And I think from a, you know, even from a marketing point of view, we're, we're seeing the fallout from that. But I think we'll, we'll save that for, for part two. We'll serialise it in a, in a Netflix documentary, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. I will just say quickly though, the one, other sad thing about all that is when you do hear about rooms in Bristol and Glasgow, that there's actually probably students that couldn't go to university or didn't go to university as commuting. And that is, you know, that's that's a real impact of those empty rooms that it's, yeah, it's just, it's not just 
it's long long ranging that impact great well thank you so much for for listening everyone and let us know any other topics that you want us to cover this podcast is about all aspects of shared living it's a fascinating and emerging part of the sector both property and real estate and we want to cover as much as possible and bring the latest news views research insight opinions to your ears thank you again and we'll catch you soon for episode two